out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist and writer, Bob Andrews, who also sometimes goes as Derwood Andrews. And was in lots of different bands, starting in the sort of mid-70s with Generation X on their first two album, albums, and then went on to form Empire, then Westworld, Moondog, and has been in music ever since, and has been working on various other musical combos, including Derwood and The Rat, which is uh, a collaboration with a band from Rats Skadies but has got an prolific output, actually, which he's got on Bandcamp, so if you want to know any more information, I will put that link in the notes below. But anyway, this is the interview with Bob. So after several minutes of interest and but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years, and we were slightly working out our age differences. Um, I was born in 1964. Anyway, you'll get the gist when you hear Bob's response. Anyway, Bob, it's over to you. I'm only five years older than you. So really, it was the same uh, music you just mentioned that I gravitated to because I thought it was especially made for me. You know, Mark Boland. I thought, oh, because the first music I ever got into was rock and roll. You know, like the old rock and roll. Yes. Uh, Chuck Berry, etc. Gene Vincent. And... um, I always wanted it to be updated, but still maintain that soul, that essence. And when Mark Boland, Gary Glitter, uh, Sweet, Slade, when they came along, that's exactly what they did. It was a, a, a updated version of what I loved. And I just assumed they were doing that for me because yeah. that's what I wanted to hear. Um and I just loved it, you know. It it was inspirational, and it showed me what uh, it showed me what what can become of something that's original, and you can put yourself into it um, and make it something brand new. That yeah. that was the lesson I got. And I remember Alice Cooper's School Out, Schools Out, which mm. was also very, that was written for us, wasn't it? Let's face it. Yeah, <laughs> it was exactly. Six weeks summer holiday, waiting for that, and Alice Cooper suddenly was there. I know. We were there. Were your parents, did they give you any musical direction or influence in life? Did they? Not at all. Not at all. But my dad worked at a college and he had access to an audio library, you know, vinyl and stuff. And he would very kindly bring every weekend, he would bring a selection of vinyl home for me to check out. Um, Because in those days, it was just the radio. That's all you, you, it was very hard to research unless you actually went to a library. But the library came to me every weekend and he would just grab, you know, covers that looked interesting. And I'd sit there and play these really obscure things that um that educated me about the 12 notes that's all you've got and it can sound like this it could sound like that it could do this it could it was really inspirational um from him you know 
Yes, absolutely. And did you, at that stage, because you're a little bit older than me, were you aware of people like the Beatles and the Stones and that kind of 60s? Oh, of course. Of course, but it wasn't my music. I'm sure you understand. You know, that wasn't made for me. That was made for mum and dad and the aunties. Um, But it doesn't mean to say that I didn't love it. And when I hear it now, it takes me back to those halcyon days of being safe young and loved by many family members and we all used to sit around and play help and you know great memories but like i say it wasn't really my uh generation's cup of tea you know yeah and did you um when did you find a musical instrument in your hands because mostly people just play music they have air guitar but very few people you know play records but very few people then actually get an instrument and sort of progress to the next level how did a guitar appear in your life uh my cousin taught me everything that you needed to know at the age of like 13 14 which was how to smoke um, how to play a few chords on the guitar and uh, how to chat up girls. And so I blame him for the rest of my life. Yes. That, you know, it's, um, yeah, so I just learned a few chords off him on a horrible guitar, which incidentally is now in the punk rock museum in Las Vegas, uh, the worst guitar ever made. That's what I learned on. And it probably has something to do with how I play, you know, because I'm not very delicate. Um, Yeah, and I just used to sit there with some buddies who had guitars and wanted to play, and we'd play records. And luckily, I had a record player that went down to 16 revs. And so I put on an album, say a free album or something, uh, listening to Paul Kossoff play. And I couldn't figure out what or how he was doing what he was doing with the twiddly bits. Um, but at 16 revs per minute, and I tune my guitar down accordingly, you can figure out what he's doing and gradually get it up to um, proper speed and all of a sudden you've learned what to do. Yeah. Blimey, that was you make it sound so easy, but obviously this is this is quite a skill at a very young age, isn't it? Well, it's just dedication, really. I, I loved practicing, I loved discovery. Um it was it it's something you could do on your own and not get in trouble on the streets and actually get results. You know, after a year of messing around with that, I was quite a good guitar player. Yes. Um and it doesn't just come, you know, you've got to do the work. Um, so, yeah, by the time uh, I joined uh, a band, I was pretty good. Right. And what was your first gig? This would have been probably the mid-70s or the... Well, this is the amazing thing, right? Now, I, I messed up. I, I thought the meeting was on Friday. So I messed up and... Today, the 4th of December, is my special day. And I don't know why I didn't um, equate you with my special day, but it is. Because my first ever gig was 4th of December, 76. 
and that was with my shitty um like schoolboy band we just thought we'd do a gig and then 10 years to the day december 4th um i was sitting there signing the contract for my band at the time called westworld um so i always equate this day with a, a lucky day that might change your life yeah so i'm hoping so i'm hoping <laughs> I'm hoping that talking to you on my special day is going to change my life. Well, absolutely. Perhaps some sort of cosmic moment will happen. This is very exciting, isn't it? The force of the, the, yeah. So that was your, but what was the first gig you went to? Did you see any? Uh, my first gig that I ever went to, and it's not very cool, but on reflection, it's beyond cool, is uh, Bill Withers. Oh, Bill Withers. God, that is that is pretty cool, though, isn't it? Dear old Bill. How did you manage yeah. to go to see Bill Withers? I mean, that's a very, I thought you were going to say, I don't know, the Wombles or status quo. No, they came later. Um, I think my mum took me, to be right. honest. That Probably is... about when I was 11 or something. She said, right, we're going to see Bill Withers. We love his account. Yeah, that's and I thought... I thought it was the joke, you know, where the punchline is Bill Withers, something about a duck. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Well, anyway, there was a lot of very <laughs> cool, cool soul pop music. So when you got to 16 at school, did you leave school at that age with a CSE or did you think, sort the CSEs, we don't care? I happened to, to go to a school that was very progressive. It was called Pimlico in oh. uh, around Vic, well, it was in Pimlico. Um, and we were the first year it opened in 1970. And um, we they basically experimented educationally on us because it was a huge 2000 kid school, which was unusual for London. And they experimented on us by the time i was like 14 um they had to they i remember them calling the meeting no it's i was 15 they called a meeting and they said listen the experiment didn't work because you know we're all kind of naughty children and uh but if you don't want to come if you want to work you can work if you don't want to work don't come in and disturb the people that want to work. And so I left school at 15 and pretended to my mum, who was a school teacher, unfortunately, that every morning I was going to school for a year. Uh, but I wasn't. I was going to the cafe and playing pinball and playing music. So I left with one exam. I got an A in history, and I proudly showed it to my mum, but I didn't tell her that that stood for absent. And that's <laughs> always that's always been a bit of a guilty thing for me. Yes. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah. I thought, God, you were a naturally brilliant historian there, but um... no, <laughs> no. <laughs> so well, did you... yes. Go on. I was going to say. Gonna... Then... No, after you. Go on. No, no, I, I say... was just going to say, oh, listen, this gap thing, I hate it. I was going to say, since then, I've become very interested in history and have studied on my own, you know, which is what happens when 
you school is just not a good environment for some people and but if you leave and you still want to be educated you can do it yourself especially now you know with yes. the resources and you can pick whatever era you're particularly fond of which is um right right so which is your well, like, like what's your doing, what's yeah. your era in what respect history what's the what's the period or the history is sort of period that you like best i like to be surprised by things i i never realized so i wouldn't i wouldn't put it down to an era or you know i'm interested in uh the english royal family and the history of that i'm uh interested in the they got some great shows on in America where it's like the uh, what made America great um, food wise, and they show documentaries on making donuts and stuff. I mean, I kind of like all that. You know? Yes, well, I rec I recommend Simon Sharma does a lot of good sort of um, series, <laughs> and he did one on the history of Britain, and I just I'd never done the history of Britain, so he started at the very beginning. And went through, and it was like, wow, that's quite interesting. And Andrew Mars done one about modern Britain as well, which I highly recommend. So, um, yeah, 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 easy to digest, and so so intriguing. So then, so how do you then sort of? So at this stage, we had sort of a bit of you know heavy rock, prog rock. You know, there was the West Coast, you know, sound of the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac, and then punk starts to appear. How does punk sort of start to affect your musical ears and attitude? Well, I knew nothing about it until I was in a band. Uh, I hadn't been exposed to it. If, the thing is, if you look back in your history books of music, um, December 3rd, 76, I believe, was when they broadcast uh, the Bill Grundy show. So my first gig was the night after the whole of Britain Really, you know, suddenly got exposed to punk rock. Yeah, um, and of course, uh, I didn't. I didn't watch that particular broadcast, so I didn't know anything uh, until about two hundred punks showed up at our little gig and trashed the stage, uh, threw us off, and you know, it's like, oh. So was this your is nice. was your first band called Paradox? Then was this your? That's that's correct. You yeah. were there playing at Fulham. Were you a Fulham fan, by yeah. the way, football-wise? Still am, yeah. I've suffered for 64 years. Yeah. The Alan Mullery years with George Best oh, and Rodney Marsh. Yeah. Oh. But yep. you did get to an FA Cup final, didn't you, with Alan Moore playing? Uh, we did, and it was against West Ham in 1975. And unfortunately... Because Fulham was such a hard team to uh, be loyal to, um, at the age of 15, I decided, well, actually, at the age of probably about 10, I decided to be a West Ham fan because, that, to me, they had a very rock and roll team at that time. Um, the first guy with a beard, Frank Lampard. Uh, the f first black dude, Clyde Best. Yeah. I mean, it's very, very progressive and... Jeff Hurst, you know. Uh, so I was in love with them. And in 1975, for the cup final, I decided to put a poster of West Ham up in the window. 
which my father walked in and tore down, threw in my face and said, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we don't want to brick through our window. You know? And then, of course, West Ham won. And that was my guilt of betraying my team. And so from that day on, I've been uh, 100% Fulham, whatever yes. they get up to. My God, you're, you're, you had a Judas moment quite early in life. I did. <laughs> I, felt, I felt terrible. And, but when you're young, you, you don't think of consequences, you know? <laughs> no. Big moment. It was a terrible game. I remember we used to watch those games, and they were, that one was particularly bad, wasn't it? I've got it on DVD, yeah. yeah. I, I have guilty moments and put it on, yeah. Yes, it's an interesting. So then from Paradox, when, how do you make the next move or how does the next move change into Generation X? Okay, so that was the 4th, 4th of December. Um, and one of the punks in the audience happened to be Billy Idol, who, you know, was not the Billy Idol we know. No. It's just a, a kid, you know, 21 or whatever. And he came up afterwards, after we came out to survey the damage. And he walked up to me, and I thought he was going to swing for me. But he didn't. He said in a very uh, Bromley accent, oh, um, I have a band. I'd really like you to audition for the band. Uh, give me your phone. Anyway, so the following day, I went on the 5th to audition with this band who you know, it's just a band. And they asked, they said, that's very good. Um, would you like to join? So I said, well, can I think about it? Because I had a job at the time. Um, and uh, so I thought about it. I thought, why not? I asked my mum, I said, should I do this? She said, well, what, what you got to lose? So I did that. And uh, we rehearsed at the Roxy and six days later on the 10th was Generation X's first gig. And the same people that were throwing shit and beating us up and trashing our gear were the same people in the audience loving what we were doing. And it was a very surreal moment of being out of favour last week and, you know, a kind of hero the next. It was very strange. Yes, and did and did you feel there was a good chemistry straight away with the the sort of the band and you you joining forces? Well, I never really meant to do it. I never. It it was a like a daydream, you know. Oh, it'd be great to be a guitarist in a band, but I didn't. It wasn't like, and that's what I'm going to do. And don't you get in my way. It wasn't like that. It was like literally. Well, it's something to do. I've never done before. Let's do it. Yes. Um, it was very uh, innocent and naive. And really, the first six months was fantastic. It really was. It was um, very exciting because it was right at the beginning of what now has become a historical movement. This is true. Uh, which I... people have aligned themselves to through the years. You know, it's great. It's yeah, it is. But then you you also were sort of going abroad. You went to was it France, Paris to play with people like the Police and the Jam and people like that. Did you did that also have a, a sort of a surreal quality to it that that suddenly here you are from playing 
with Paradox to a band who suddenly has been moved around the country and into Europe? Not really, because it was very low, low, uh, you know, we were in a van and uh, it was very unprofessional uh, and very small time. Um, yeah, it, 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 you know, we we weren't making any money. Um, I think we were getting like 20 or 30 pounds a week, which was way less than I was getting at my job. So it wasn't, it wasn't as if, hey, Mara, I made it. You know, it it was a it was a struggle. Yes. Did you um at that stage was was the job not the job was the band a full time job or were you having to sort of hustle on the side as well? No, I did I did make the commitment of uh, quitting my job very shortly after we did our first two gigs. I was like, well, I better tell them I'm not coming back. You know. Yes, absolutely. But at that <clears> stage, <throat> you wouldn't have had a record contract. I, I'm guessing. Oh no. No, no, we had nothing. It was just us and someone driving the van and uh, a roadie, you know, that, that was it. And we'd turn up with a gear and play for about half an hour and, and drive home. I mean, there that, you go. There was, there was yeah. a lot. That, that was good. And it was Chrysalis who were also, they signed Blondie, hadn't they, as well, at some stage in there. Yeah. Of, so that was that was good. So when you went to record the first album, which is the same self-titled, this is um, engineered by Alan Wynne Stanley. Can you remember much of that session? This was kind of you recorded it in the was it November December seventy seven? Um, probably, yeah. We tried a few different places before we found uh, what basically was a very basic studio in Fulham that Alan Winstanley engineered and Martin Russian produced. And we basically just played the live set, um, you know, one one or two takes each track, uh, a few overdubs, and, and the whole thing was finished within 10 days. Uh, and it was it was just done. You know, you got to remember, um, it wasn't like it is now where you go on TV, win a, a singing contest and all of a sudden you're in limos and, uh, you know, it, it was, it was very simple. And that's what was so great about it. Uh, for me personally, when it became a bit pompous is when it lost me, you know, yes. I wasn't really, I wasn't cut out to be around that. Um, and I've I've kind of kept that way ever since, you know. I just it doesn't there's nothing there for me. It's like oh, this is really sad and lonely, you know. Yes, you, you just sit in a hotel and then go out and play for an hour, and then you go back to the hotel and it's like oh, I just want to go home. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it was kind of like you know everyone says go big or go home. Well, I went home and I was yeah. quite happy. Yes, absolutely. Did you, um, when you did your second album, which is Valley of the Dolls, this is with Ian Hunter producing. What was that? You know, the tri not always the tricky second album, but sort of obviously having the traction to, you know, go and tour the first album and then think, right, we've got to get the second album ASAP because of the record company are going to want it and the fans will want it. Was there, um, yes, work with Alan Hunter. What was that like? Um, Ian Hunter. Ian, did I say Alan? Yeah, I, 
it, yeah. maybe it should have been Alan, but no, it was Ian. It was Ian, was it? Alan Hunter. And I, I think it's been talked about so many times. You know, some people love that album because it really pushed our musical capabilities, which it did. Um, you know, we had acoustic guitar on there and Hammond organ and girl backing vocals. Um, so it was a very big departure from the first album. And some people like that, that fact and other people think we should have done a couple more like the first. And I kind of step into that group of people that I think we should have done at least one more album in 10 days and just given it hell, you know? Yeah. But we didn't. We we got all pompous and we spent months and lots of money with Ian and ended up with um, what we ended up with, but we had two or three hits. And apparently that's what it's all about. Yes. I know it's tricky, isn't it? But then, as we we were trucking towards the end of the decade, you know, seventy nine, you know, Margaret Thatcher gets in, the Conservative Ugh. government suddenly get get a hold of the eighties and beyond. Ugh. But um, and then it was there was obviously the Falkland War, the the miners' mm. strike, Greenham Common. We all thought we were going to be nuked, and you leave Generation X at this stage, and then what's you know musically things are changing quite a lot because obviously the punk scene has a good couple of years if you're lucky and then it all becomes a bit you know cliched and then there's post yeah. what, what about yourself at this stage you're sort of 21 i think and um you've you're sort of you know now sort of back to being on your own again what was that like fantastic because um it's funny i, I you can edit this out but so a friend of mine sent me a a Japanese cartoon of the history of Generation X. And I'm like, well, it's about 25 minutes long. I thought, blimey, someone's put a lot of work into this. I should watch it. And it started off with uh, Billy in a classroom with the teacher saying something about idol, your idol. And, you know, that's how he got his name and all that stuff. But of course, it was all in Japanese. Uh, but you could figure out what was going on because I remember the history, you know. And I eventually I, I went, okay, I, I just want to fast forward to um, me leaving the band. Let's see what happens there. And uh, so I did that. And of course, we're all sitting around a table and I get up. And just walk, I say something and I walk out. So I asked another friend, could they translate what I said? Because it would be quite interesting. And what they said was brilliant. It just said, bad vibes, I quit. There you go. And that's all I, all I need to say, you know. Yes. It was yeah. bad vibes, I quit. Yes, that's a that's a good one. That's another one to um to quote as well, isn't it? That's yeah. I'll, I'll write that down. I'm copying that one. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. actually, a lot of people often say, you know, with a lot of you know bands that I've interviewed, they just kind of wish they'd quit that little bit earlier when it just became toxic or a bit weird or just bad vibes, and then you just got to walk away because it's not going to get better, is it? Actually, that's the main thing. So um, well, it's it, gonna be... it it could have. But I was working with people that 
ultimately didn't want to share anything. Like they wanted to keep all the toys and just play with themselves. And I couldn't deal with it. It was just like, no, I, I you know, I, I've tried my best. I've done some really good guitar work. Uh, so I'm going to go try it on my own. Yes. And there you go. With, and then the 80s yeah. appear. This is exciting because because obviously you saw The Guardian the other week, didn't you? We all saw The Guardian and this fantastic how, article. How great was that? It was brilliant. And also the great thing was that Seth is somebody I interviewed probably last year about his band. And um, oh. he's got an amazing history and website. So you should definitely check out. I'm sure you know about him. But um, yes, yeah, so this fantastic article appears. And um and we suddenly get very excited because this is obviously, you know, your second, well, probably your second chapter of musical excitement. So, yes, so this this kind of fits together quite nicely, doesn't it? The 80s appears with Empire. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like I said in the article, um, we started off as a, a three-piece band that were going to be instrumental um, because I didn't want to employ another singer. Um, because of what I'd just been through with Billy. And I didn't want to sing myself, so it was a logical thing. We'll be the punk shadows. You know, we'll just do instrumentals. But then, unfortunately, I started hearing words and tunes and, and eventually convinced myself that because they're in my head, it would be a lot easier just to blurt it out. Um, so the first 11 songs I wrote, and sang on and recorded were was that album expensive sound yes and that has kind of become something of a classic hasn't it and and sort of um people are now loving it so yes did you feel at that stage a kind of a, a fantastic reawakening and and sort of faith in the human race again uh, not so much the human race but faith in myself um because I felt so freed up to do what I want to do, which was the whole idea of punk rock in the first place. Um, that was a freeing feeling. And whether it was a success or not, um, the success lied, laid in the fact that it, it exists and we did it. Yes. Um, and and for, for it to be held up some 40, 30, yeah, 45 years later as not bad is fant a fantastic feeling because it proves to me that music never dies. We all do, but what music you make is going to be around to the end of time and, yes. ready, and ready for people to rediscover. And that gives me faith, you know. I know. I think it's beautiful. I think it's such a great yeah. thing. Forty years, and um, yes, it's it's suddenly that work has has sort of found a whole new audience, and um, yeah, huge and beautiful. And I have to say, the band do look amazing, don't they? You do. You do all look such um, cool chic guys. Well, we we were all like twenty, not even twenty one. Um. It was it was great, and it, you know it's like when you, I guess it's like if you work for a boss that you can't stand, 
and you leave and and start your own company it's that kind of feeling you know yes so when you so you bought out the second album that was was that a couple of years later and then you sort of rename it kind of new empire well we never brought out an album we we suffered from a lack of as they say in spinal tap a lack of uh what was it advertising funds we had very few people on our side and we were kind of used to that and it was just a case of hustling continually um and eventually somebody said you need to just play the guitar and get a singer and unfortunately or fortunately i agreed and uh we had a wonderful fella step in uh babel wallace who is no longer with us from a year or so ago and uh just one of the greatest singers i've ever worked with and definitely the greatest uh i wouldn't call him an entertainer but i've never seen anyone because we did a lot of support gigs so it's always hard to walk on to another band's audience yes but there's there were so many times where babel and our music and our and our ragged passion won this audience over and by the end of it it was more more you know encore blah blah and it was all down to a lot of it was down to babel's reaction and interaction with the audience because he was one of the most honest guys i ever met in as much as um uh fronting a band but he was he was the head of the band he, he wasn't on his own it was a it was a like an arrow point and uh he took us with him and we went with him you know right and then because you did a brilliant version of um family affair don't you oh yeah that is good yeah i did yeah. like that I've, I've heard iggy pops also done he did one decades ago which was oh. um, a quite a nice little version of it and i think he's done another one very recently with trevor horn one of these compilations that trevor horn the producer put together Oof. I know it was a bit bombastic, really. But then, I yes, it, well, it was too much. But then, do you <laughs> then by '85? Is that the kind of the end of New Empire? Yeah. Um, once again, I'd got to a point, and you know, it's a it's a fault of mine. But I get to a point where I don't feel I belong in something I created anymore, and just at a whim, I'll just walk out and take whatever's coming whether it's back to poverty back to you know so i did that and um it was tough for a while and we tried this and that we me and the bass player another uh very important part of empire michael gregovich who also is no longer with us unfortunately um me and him just teamed up and started going in studios when we could and and make music and stuff like that and eventually we we kind of based ourselves on a, a filthy tears for fears because they were so prim and proper and clean mm. um we were filthy we lived in squats we were dirty and unkempt and but we thought well maybe we could be the opposite you know the filthy tears for, tears for fears but that didn't work out. Yes. And then, sorry, go on. 
And I was going to say, did you ever sort of get a name together or any recordings of that musical? Yeah, it's it's one of the it's probably the only thing that I would keep to myself because we tried to fit into the eighties musically, and it it was it's kind of corny, and I'm not very proud of it, so I'll, I'll probably just keep it to myself but um i was gonna say that by the time 85 came around um i was getting kind of sick of the poverty and you know because i felt i'd done some good work but i'd never been paid for it i'd never benefited financially and i didn't have a job you know it was it was a full-time job doing what i was doing and I just got sick of it. And I thought, well, if I don't do something that's popular soon, I might as well join the army or something. Because um, at least I'll get a living wage, you know? Yes, desperate stuff. Because the 80s had sort of it had blossomed quite a lot in different musical worlds. I mean, I suppose you had the goth scene that had be, appeared and the goth, yeah, so the back cave. Yeah. And then you had new romantics and that electronic sound. And then you had the the sort of new romantics with Duran Duran and people like that. And then the sort of the the, the world of, I don't know, U2, Simple Minds, and then 83, mm. the Smiths come along, don't they? And and for yeah, five yeah. years, the Smiths and Johnny Marr is there. Is there. Is any of that kind of those different scenes or band or any of those bands, do they kind of pique your interest at all? Or are you kind of not not really that kind of engaged in it? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, they they didn't capture my attention very much. Um, I mean, obviously there was a few good songs that I liked, but it wasn't from a particular band. It was just, you know, luckily once in a while someone would come up with something really great. Yes, and then so then West Westworld appear in sort of the mid eighties. This is around the time of right know, Live Aid. I don't know, rock against racism. Yeah. Oh, Red Wedge, and you know all oh, that kind yeah. of world. So, how did you? Where, where were you at that stage with um, creating this new kind of funky beatbox, beatbox rock and roll band? Well, like I said, I'd had had enough of the struggle, and I, I wanted to finally uh, have some success financially and uh, spiritually. You know. Um, and I, I just went on this mission. I don't know where it came from, but I just went on this mission to find people that would want to work really hard um, to create something that hasn't been created before uh, and do it all on our own. And luckily I found Elizabeth Westwood and I found Nick Burton. And we were all on the same page. We all wanted to have fun and you know a bit of cash in your pocket and just laugh and um i thought the best way to achieve that was to create a throwaway pop band in the realms of t-rex um and also going back to like eddie cochran and gene vincent and just like a an unserious, unpretentious, stupid lyric 
uh, good looking band. Um, so we did, we managed to, to do that and we put our own record out and we created a buzz and we, we didn't take no for an answer and we pestered people and blah, blah, you know, and eventually came up because Elizabeth was from uh, Washington, DC. She had a different taste and was exposed to different music than me and Nick, who were British, British, British. Yes. And, and so that mixture of hip hop and Eddie Cochran and a bit of punk became what Westworld was um, in a flippant, let's have fun way. And yep. I, I guess we we hit the the timing perfectly because it worked really well. God, it did. Sonic Boom Boy. That was ah, yeah. I kind of can't even remember writing that, but I know I did. It was. I remember my. I remember my. I was flat or recording it on a Porter Studio or something, and my dad walked in and he said, "You know." Because at the time it, it was going sonic boom boom boy or or so, sonic boom a boom boy, and he said no 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 it's too complicated you need to keep it on the beat you know sonic boom boom boy I went all right dad cheers <laughs> so so I know I actually did write it I just can't remember how it came about yes you know so, you... well some songs are just well all songs all music in my mind, is just floating around. And all you've got to do is be receptive to dragging it down from the ether and uh, making it exist. Amazing. That was just brilliant. Then, obviously, you nearly had a top ten here. I mean, very close. Suddenly, did, did things just change for you, kind of like in all sorts of ways because of... Um, having the single, having, you know, a much more, I suppose you were much more on the kind of musical zeitgeist. I'm sure Ray, Daytime Radio 1 would have loved this band, wouldn't they? Yeah. Um, all that changed was uh, we were so ridiculously busy promoting Sonic Boom Boy all over Europe um, that we didn't have time to finish the album. So... It's a very bad thing for a band to release a single, have a hit, and not follow it up immediately with the album because that's where the record company make their money. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, the record company decided because we hadn't finished the album, they'll just keep throwing singles out until we had. Uh, and, of course, when one, the following single doesn't do quite as well as the first, immediately especially in great britain you're a one-hit wonder and it's very difficult to change that perception um yeah, yeah. so we suffered from good timing to start with uh and dreadful timing to finish with Yes. And how were you coping during that period of the 80s where suddenly there's another kind of musical moment and chapter appears? I think every three to five years there's a, a new wave and sort of by 87, ecstasy had come along and there was suddenly that dance scene and the Manchester sort of sound with the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays and 
Chicago house music and then sort of 89 to 90 there was the Seattle grunge scene so how were you kind of dealing with all this creativity you know um, creative influences that were starting to happen on the horizon well I appreciated a lot of it especially the grunge um, but uh, I like I said the only time I really tried to fit in to what was going on was the um, stuff that I'm too embarrassed to share because I don't want to fit in. Um, it's much better to try something original, even if it's not at the right time, and do what's in your heart. Um, so it, it, I wasn't sitting there going, oh, we better be a grunge band now or we better do some uh, electronic stuff. or Because... I'd got so used to being unpopular, it wasn't a factor. It was a way of life. Yes. And then we and and then sort of the, the the as we change into a decade, you bring out one more album with a band and you move to Arizona. So this is this is a big change. Yeah. Um of course the record company didn't even put out the second album and dumped us after a year. No, two years. They did pick up a another year. And uh, once again, you know, back to square one. Um, but just at the height of desperation and the terrible thing of seeing everything you created become absolutely nothing again, um, a record company stepped in and said, look, uh, have you got any new songs? Because we're... Um, you, we'll pay for you to record them. And so we did that. And then they said, well, it's only going to be released in America. Uh, and we said, well, we should be living in America then, if that's where it's going to be. And so they said, well, where do you want to live? They had an enormous amount of money. It was ridiculous. Where do you want to live? Um, so we looked at the map. And we said, well, we, we don't want to be in L.A. We'll just get too wrapped up in all the bullshit. Let's go move to the middle of nowhere in the Arizona desert. And we picked a place called uh, Cave Creek. Um, and we went there. We rented a massive Frank Lloyd Wright house. And we spent probably <laughs> the most debaucherous three years of my life and other people's uh living like rock stars with no um product that ever did anything <laughs> it was it was fantastic so we milked it was this with mca records then you and the album yeah. Mo movers and shakers that's correct yeah my god yeah. that was that must seem like a surreal episode in your life it was it was such a good time because i was early 30s um and just discovering a whole new world of, um, it was kind of like, I used to sit and watch Westerns with my dad when I was a kid, and I never believed it. I thought it was all made up. Um, and then I got to Cave Creek, and people would ride a horse into the bar. People would shoot their guns up in the air. There was no law enforcement anywhere. Um, it, 
it was like a I'd stepped into Gunsmoke or something. Yeah. And there were bar there were bar fights and people getting pull cues over their heads and it was the most brilliant time. It really was. God, it must have been extraordinary to have that. It was. So when, so when you presented the album to them and you thought, were you pleased with the album or were you thinking, who knows, we've 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 gone down a rabbit hole with this one? No, I, th- I thought, I still think it's a really great, um, like, rock dance album. I think it's, because uh, we, we were out at the same time as EMF and Jesus Jones. Oh, yes. Um, and it was the same kind of guitar-based dance rock and we used the same producer that emf did ralph gizzard and we were kind of lumped in with all them except we lived in uh the states um and of course i think our album was released in early 91 and the following week uh teen spirit came out and that was the end of anything in America that wasn't copying Nirvana. That was the end of it. Yes, that was. That which was a... Yeah, which was fine, you know. Yes, well, it was a good ride, actually. That was a good ride. Yeah. So, so then, does the band, you just say, well, that's the end of that one. And then Moondog comes along with you and Elizabeth still. So you, you're still sort of keeping a kind of creative direction for the next episode which again is quite a you come back to london at this stage well you've really done your homework um it's very nice to hear what happened was we we started playing westworld around little bars in phoenix which is where we were close to the biggest city and uh really not only the influence of being in the desert and making friends with rattlesnakes and and uh you know just being exposed to all this critters and plants that that you should really stay away from and you know just being educated about where you live um that along with some of the folks that we got to be good friends with who were musicians um i kind of got taught the slide guitar by uh, an old Vietnam vet called Doc. And uh, I used to go around there and we'd jam and he'd, he'd show me what to do. And and so the music kind of changed. Um, and so me and Elizabeth thought, well, the music is is different. Um, probably we should uh, change the name, the brand. Um, so we did some demos and we we basically ran out of money. Our fun, the party was over. So we went back to London and my dear friend, Pete McCarthy, who was a a Svenguli of getting bands, he got Westworld the deal and he got the Stray Cats the deal and he got uh, the Colt the deal. I mean, he he was a real character. He is is a character. He's still with us. he he told me about this whole movement, the jungle scene, and he said, Derrid, you've got to listen to the radio because ev- these kids are just making music on their Atari computers and setting up a radio station, and you can drive around London and, and within 10-mile radius of their aerials, you get all this different music and it's all 
it's all really low key, you know, no, no one knows about it particularly. It's just there and it's young people making it. And basically he put me in touch with uh, a chap called Martin Lee Stevenson, who was a young kid on the edge of that scene. And I gave him the demo tapes, the multi-tracks of, of the songs we'd made out in Arizona with Sly Guitar and Elizabeth singing. And he took it and he actually came around and he said, no, 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 you got to put more bass on it. you got to make it more trebly. you got to lose the middle or put 2K in it. I'm like, what's he talking about? I've got no idea. <laughs> and then he blew my speakers up. And that's when I suddenly realized this is punk rock, but in a different form. Uh, it's, it's destroy, you know, it's that, that, uh, and well, it's that angsty, uh, we're young and we're going to do it kind of attitude. Yes. And, and I thought it was brilliant. It was original. It was new. It was messing things up. It was taking drums and tuning them up to like 175 beats per minute when they should be 120 and you can dance to it. It was it was anarchy. I loved it. And what he did to our multi-tracks became half of um, Moondog's first album called Fat A Lot of Good. Um, it was just a mashup. And nobody understood it because nobody even understood Jungle at that time. I'm talking about 93, 94. Yes. Um, so to add more elements to what, already someone doesn't understand like a slide guitar and wispy vocals we were you know people were like i i think i like it but what is it and <laughs> um, we had no answer yeah uh, i don't know what it is it just is um so we had a big problem it took two years to find someone with enough gumption to release it and um yes yeah. This was this is Fat Lot of Good, which came out. Was it ninety six? Wasn't it on? Was it Better Records? It came out on my birthday in ninety six. Um, Better Records, which was uh, Tim and Chris Abbott, um, who were more than friends with Oasis. They were part of the original crew, and and you know, so there was. There was a little scene with better records and and Noel and Liam and stuff like that. And uh yeah, it was a great thing. But then unfortunately by that time I had had enough of London and moved back to Los Angeles, hoping to return to the desert. Um and the poor record company went down. And so it was looking good for a while. We had some really good reviews, but the record company went bust. So, and I left the oh, country. God. So it was kind of sad because we'd never had any good, I'd never had a good review in my life. So to read all the, this is a masterpiece and all that. And then to bugger off, it was kind of a bit sad. Tricky, tricky. Did you then release, you released a few EPs, didn't you? Silver Lining and the single Black Black Pain as well. Yeah, um, yeah. Nothing Better Sacred. Records. 
that yeah. was all better but, records. Yes. Yeah. And it was it was lovely of them to do it, but I guess they overstepped their financial boundaries and just couldn't keep going. Um but that's not to say that I don't think we made some amazing original music that like the Empire stuff from 40 years ago, I hope one day people listen to it and go, wow, this is really quite interesting, you know? I'm sure they will. They have At the moment, yeah. everyone, everyone's good. When you released God's Wallop, God's Wallop mm. was that recorded? Did you record that in London? But it, get, it just came out later when, you know, when you were in America. God's Wallop was recorded in London and... It was, at the time, I didn't really realise it, but it was a breakup album of me and Elizabeth's partnership. Um, all the songs are basically quite sad and desperate um, because a 10-year relationship was going down the toilet. Um, and I think I might have finished it in America. I can't remember. But it was finished before... Um, the first one came out and then we had to wait another five years to find someone else to put it out um, in 2001 by which time we'd already finished the third album All the Love in the World so it was all kind of messed up and mixed up um, but looking back on it now uh, I think we made three pretty original um interesting albums that i really do love yes and who's the vocalist on all the loves and oh is elizabeth on that as well yeah 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 so she's on all three albums well you are basically the you two are moon dog aren't you yeah yeah with the, with uh martin lee stevenson being the third important remixer and engineer and ideas man yeah Yes. So you're in America at this point, the O years, or the, mm. and, and, and then where is your next musical kind of adventure? Is this Speed Twin, or is that just the project that you did a bit earlier in the 90s? Um, it was a friend of mine, Gary Twin, who was in a band called 20 Flight Rockers. He was the singer and was just a friend of mine. And what happened, this is another fault of mine, I get I get too involved in other people's things and I've learned that lesson and I, I tend to step back these days and realise this isn't my thing. I'm just helping out and enjoying it, but don't get too involved. Uh, unfortunately, he asked me to produce a solo record for him and I said... Okay, so I bought a load of equipment. I just moved to America, uh, stuffed it in a closet, got it all set up, and we we recorded, uh, I think it's called California, the album. And, of course, I bloody joined the band uh, because I was like, well, I better play some guitar on it. And then afterwards it's like, well, we better do some gigs. And so I I was committed to that along with, Moondog at the same time uh, for a good four or five years uh, playing around Los Angeles and, and uh, you know, trying to promote it and uh, tell people at the time that this is alternative country and everyone was like, 
what? <laughs> Alternative country? Um, and then, lo and behold, as soon as we quit, along comes alternative country. Yes, Wilco, Uncle Chapello, all those, Jeff Tweedy. Well, yeah, yeah, all that stuff. I, I, obviously, we didn't inf- influence anyone, but we were there. We just didn't have the gumption to keep going, you know. Oh, that's so, um, not heartbreaking, but it's just bad timing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And okay. then... And then, and then, because you've done tons of work here, haven't you? I've I've been listening to a lot of your material. It gets quite confusing, actually, doesn't doesn't it? At this point, because there's so many your solo records, and then there's other ones that you do an album of covers, which is brilliant because you do a great version of Save a Prayer, which oh, I yeah. I have a quite a soft spot for for some. Yeah, reason. great song. It great is song. A, it is a great song. So yeah, so you do this album called cover you ask that's 2010 do you do anything before that do you, you know in the o years uh, well we put out moon dog all love in the world in 2004 and then yes you're right there is a huge gap but i'm sure i was doing something um just i haven't stopped you know it's just uh i can't quite remember what um but that album well, actually, I was doing that because that album was not supposed to be an album. It was just I was in this little club uh, with a friend in New Jersey and all his buddies, and I was lucky enough to be included. Um, and about I'd say about every six months, Keith, who was the main dude, would email everyone and say, Okay, we're going to do a short run of 300 CDs. Uh, it's going to be a tribute to David Bowie. And and get your songs in by midnight tonight and first come, first served. So it was just fun, you know. And it's it's a very fun thing to try and manipulate a song that is so well known and so established as it is, uh, to try and make, to inject yourself into it somehow without ruining it. Um, it's a it's a really good exercise. Yeah. Um, so is that Lady Grinning Soul you did for that project? Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought I'd take a really obscure one, and you know, instead of Gene Genie or something. Yeah. Um, because no one else would want to do it. So. And that song actually meant a lot to me uh, because it reminded me of a gal I used to know that just loved that song because she thought it was written for her. And uh, it always, I always remember her being like, this was my song. And <laughs> so um, I thought I'd do it for her and just for the hell of it. And yeah, so that was what it was like. So every six months, he'd come up with something else like, okay, ACDC songs in by 12 o'clock. Uh, okay. I've, I don't, I've never heard of, uh, kicked in the teeth. I didn't know that one, but I yes. thought, well, that's a good song. Um, and the same with, uh, Devo. I can't remember what one I did, but I didn't know any Devo, but I came across that and I thought, Hmm. Uh, yeah. So it, like I say, it was pure fun. Nothing to do with money or popularity or anything. It was just going to be 
short runs, 300 CDs sold locally in New Jersey. Yes. And eventually I'd done enough to make an album. And he said, well, do you want to put it all out on one thing? Uh, and I said, yeah, okay. And so they did and they, they made artwork and made 300 copies and, and that was that. Oh, that's brilliant. I think it's such a great one, actually. It's so good. Oh, good. I do love it. I mean, I love hearing a version which isn't anything like, well, not that similar to the original, because otherwise you might as well just listen to the original. Yeah, right. <laughs> and right. And, um, and then, and because, and you know, there is a sort of, a, you know, a bit of a love for Save a Prayer and also Backstabbers and... Um, oh, yeah. All those, I mean, obviously, smoke on the water. But then, two years ago, you do a great version of this one, Spaceman, which kind of I hadn't heard for decades, which, again, was, was kind of brought a smile to my face because, again, I don't know, what who was the band who did Spaceman? Um, I, I, I always forget their name. They, they, unfortunately, were another one-hit wonder. Um, I can't remember their name, but... I remember it was the only uh, and only people in in England of a certain age would know that song. It was the only song that went straight to number one because it was a Coca Cola commercial on TV. It was it it, it was one of the first songs that um, didn't get radio play at first. It was uh, it was a blueprint for how the music business was going to be. Because now, you know, you get a song on a commercial and annoy people enough for 30 seconds, you eventually go, I love that song. Who is it? And then yes. then it becomes bigger than it might should have been, you know? But that was the first song that ever did that. Yes, I know. It's a lovely version because, I mean, I wouldn't want to hear the original again because it's quite irritating. But it's a bit... It's it, yeah, it is, yeah. But the lyrics are fun, and it's quite amazing. Oh, the, the lyrics are great. It's a wonderful song that most of the world has never heard. Um, so I thought that would be quite a good idea just to do that. I, don't, I think something was going on at the time. Uh, there was a resurgence in the interest of space. Yes. And, and uh, I think, I don't know, I can't remember what it was now, but... Everyone was into space again for about six months. Uh, and I thought, oh, I'll just do a copy of that. Yes. Oh, it was Babylon Zoo. It was Babylon Zoo, that's it. And interestingly enough, because I was thinking that felt like either the John Major years or the end of or New Labour, it was John Major, 96, it came out. So there you go. Oh, right, right. That's so when you, I left England. Yeah. You left England. And, yes. And that was the end of that. So then you've been doing lots of solo work and occasionally you've got this series called Tone Poet, haven't you? You've been oh. an amazing yeah. amount of work doing this. Um, I am so, oh, I sound like your mum, but I'm so proud of you for doing this research because. The one thing I've noticed over these years is it's very hard to connect the dots with what I've done because I am the world's worst publicity-seeking um, person. You know, I, I, I'm not cut out for that. I'm just not. Um, and my wife laughs. Uh, you know, I, I 
come up with an album. I do one post on Facebook and that's it. And, you know, <laughs> I've got no one working on my behalf. It's just that. And in my mind, finishing something and making it exist is the end of my work. So I move on to something else. Yeah, I think a lot of filmmakers are a little bit similar, aren't they? They they never watch the film once it's done. It's like I never want to watch it. I've never watched it. It's it's been it's you know it's I've I've done with that process. It's I've got to move on. I, I know what you're saying, but I actually do really enjoy listening to my work because it's like looking back on a, a photograph album of the times that it was made, why it was made like it was what I'm trying to say in it, um, I find it interesting. Uh, without sounding funny, I'm quite a big fan of my music and I play it a lot of times, you know? Yes. Uh, it, mainly because I can't hear anything like it anywhere else. And what happened with Tone Poet was I thought, okay, it's, it's time to make a, a solo album, you know, like, Everyone makes everyone writes a book and makes a solo album. So I thought, well, I'll write a book and I'll make a solo album. And so I did. And but at the end of the solo album, my wife uh, brought me this, bought me a lap steel guitar because we'd been out toodling around once and there was one in a shop. And I looked at it and went, oh, that's nice. Anyway, she she got it for me um for christmas or something and i was like oh that's great but what what the fuck do i do with this you know it's got no frets it's got a square neck on the back and you play it on your lap um i've no idea what to do but eventually it was staring at me on the wall and i took it down and i figured stuff out on it without bothering to research really what you should be doing i figured it out and all of a sudden I had a song, which was the first song on Tongue Poet Volume 2 called Coyote. And oh. it was a very it was a very simple uh song about well, just about coyotes, because I see them every day, you know, they're part of my fabric. And uh they kill things and they sing when they kill something. It's um, it's very desert, very rural, and I some I played it back after I'd written it and recorded it, and I thought I really like this. This is so um, because by that time I I felt like I'd done enough on the guitar, the normal guitar that I might start just repeating myself for the sake of it, um. So to have an instrument at my disposal, which was completely different, and to go back to the rudiments of music, where it's just a voice and a guitar, it was a revelation to me. And and uh, I just couldn't stop writing songs. And yes. eventually it, be it became an album. And then I loved that so much, I thought, okay, I'll make a third one and then a fourth one. <laughs> and then I'll do it. I'll do a live radio show, and then I'll do a smash hits album on vinyl. And then, you know, uh, like I say, I don't think it has found its audience yet. But um, 
I'm not going to give up on it. I still play around town and, you know, just for fun because it, it, I don't need a band. It's just me. I just pick up uh, my stuff, go to the bar, play and come home. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't have to ask someone to get a babysitter so they can drum for me or, you know, it's um, self-contained. And like I say, I love it. It's simple. It got me back to the start of naivety and music and, and uh, yeah, that's, that's the tone poet story. The, the American blues with a desert vibe. There we go. Yeah. Did, you, did you enjoy that film called, was it Paris, Texas? With um, Raikou, the, yeah. Raikou. Did you, did you, yeah, immerse yourself yeah. In, the, in that kind of spacious kind of wandering? Yeah, vibe. yeah, because I saw what it did to me, that simple, desperate-sounding howl of the wind, which he plays the guitar like you know it's just like oh my god if you've if you've ever sat in the desert on your own for six hours and just stared into space without drugs or alcohol um that's that music is just that's blowing in the wind um and yeah i saw what it did to me and i thought well not at, at the time i saw it years ago but it always stuck with me that that simplicity uh, could be easily translatable to other people. But like I say, um, a lot of people, if they know me at all, they think of punk rock or a silly pop Westworld or, you know, that's that's my most popular, st- or Empire now, now that that's had an airing. But they don't think of kind of bluesy, solo, artist, uh, so I'm not surprised that it's not a big seller because I haven't found the audience, and I know they're out there, that would enjoy that stuff um, but wouldn't necessarily find it through what I am little known, uh, a little bit known for. Yes. You see, what, you see what I'm saying? And it's very difficult to label, and bear with me here, because... When you put stuff up on on uh, sharing platforms and you know Spotify, blah blah blah, you have to label it. You have to give it a brand, a label, and it's very difficult for me to think. Well, it's not quite. I'm not trying to be a blues man, but it is a little bit bluesy. I'm not trying to be. Um, I don't know. It's very difficult, and there's no, there's no label, but just rock and roll, which is what I would put myself in a label of everything I've done is just rock and roll. But there's not even a category on these platforms for rock and roll, so I can't just ambiguously do that, and so I have to end up saying, okay, it's blues, okay, well it's electronica blues because I use drum machines and, and uh, some synths. Yeah, but it's not quite, you know what I'm saying? It's yes. very difficult. It's very difficult for me to make it easy for you to know what the fuck you're going to hear. Because <laughs> you might think, because you might think it's, uh, oh, him, oh yeah, he's a punk rock guitarist. So they expect to hear some lousy, loud, you know, raucous guitar, but it's not that. 
Um, and it's just something I need to delve into for my own, my own sake uh, because it brings me joy, you know. How much does the, um, you talk about the deserts, but how much does the, the Milky Way in the night sky influence your kind of creative kind of direction as well? Because obviously those stars at night is pretty spectacular and you do get a sense of the wonderment of the universe every day, don't you? Yes, you do. Um, and dare I say that it becomes, it can become familiar um, to the point of uh, blasé. It's like, oh, yeah, it's the Milky Way. Yeah. But how many people in, in London have ever seen the Milky Way? Not like that. Um, I've seen it. I see it every night. And I can tell you this. I can tell you the stages of the moon. I can tell you the constellations, what where they are, what they are. You know, you can't help but educate yourself on where you are. And uh, like I say, th this is really the only place that I feel that I do actually belong. Um, I belong here with my friends and neighbours who are not musicians, but they have a similar dedication to something, uh, whether it be making stuff or fixing cars or bikes or... Um, there's a... I belong here and it's fun. You know? Yes, I could imagine. And now an album that I've also been playing, you're the, the one Derwood and the Rat, which came out, mm. which is it's got an amazing guitar sound. This this is quite a special album, isn't it? When did this get um you know formulated and, and recorded and written? Have you got time to hear the story? Yes, God, absolutely. I I don't want to take up your whole evening. You know? No, no, that's fine. Okay, um, so when when uh, the anniversary of Expensive Sound was coming up, uh, the 40-year anniversary of the release of Expensive Sound, and just before the pandemic, my friend Mark Laff, the drummer from Generation X and Empire, decided to pay me a visit after 20 years, and he came to the desert, and we had a lovely weekend, and we didn't speak about anything but the now. You know, we didn't delve into the past. Um, a little bit into the future because we decided, okay, let's try and make um, a follow-up album to the Empire album 40 years on. Let's see what comes out. Um, because as a project, as a blank, you start with a blank piece of paper and the paper said, follow up album to expensive sound 40 years later. And then you start to imagine, well, how much are we going to stick to how we sounded and what we were writing about? And how much are we going to use the 40 years of life and bring that into that album uh, to make sense to us both? And it was all looking good. It was, uh, it came in November 19. By January, the pandemic came along and he lives in France. I live out here. So there was no traveling. Um, just we wanted to record it like we did Empire in about, you know, a week. We just yeah. laid it down live. Uh, that wasn't going to happen. 
And unfortunately, I did a lot of writing and demoing and sent the stuff to him. And eventually it came down to Mark. We're not going to be able to do this. And the anniversary is fast approaching. Could you, do you think you could send me files of you drumming to what I send you? And it was always a case of yes, of course, yes. And it never happened. So I was disappointed, but I just put that the songs on a shelf and thought, eh, okay. Um, and then I was working on some film music and it was all atmospheric uh, sly guitar, kind of like Raikuda, but um, through a Marshall stack instead of a sweet amp, you know. And uh, so I was doing that and I got back in touch with Rat again. And I said, hey, Rat, oh, do some drums on this film music. So he sent me files and it fitted in so nicely. It was so easy and beautiful and no trouble at all you know he just slotted it in there and he played to to exactly the arrangement and it was just a done deal and two of those tracks actually are on that album uh tenderfoot and uh what was the other one i can't remember but it's an instrumental and so we finished those two tracks and i said hey rat any chance you want to um carry on because i've got some more songs that i was waiting for drums for and he says yeah of course send it over and within i would say six weeks i had written more songs he had sent all the drums over and i manipulated everything here in my little bedroom and um it turned out to be uh derwood and rat because I didn't feel comfortable calling it Empire because Mark wasn't involved. Yes. Um, so I said, look, I'm just going to call it Derwood and the Rat, if that's okay. And he said, well, I'm not sure about the, but okay. Um, and then, then a lovely gentleman in Germany offered to release it on vinyl. And it came out and that's another thing i'm pretty proud of you know yeah god it's it's a brilliant sound it's got such a great vibe to it and um you know i just love the guitar you know everything about it sounds so good it does sound so good i don't know there's a, there's a great i mean people need to hear it to um believe it but i can't so you recorded that in your in your shack next to you yeah i've got a spare house like uh, a little guest house uh with a bedroom set aside for all my stuff, uh, which is a beautiful convenience because I haven't always been so lucky where you can work on something and shut the door and leave it and you know nothing's going to move yes. or change. Uh, and it's a beautiful thing to have that space. I mean, all, all my equipment is really bad. I, I don't keep up with the times. I it's uh i don't use pro tools or anything like that i use garage band and i use the old atari sometimes um because i found that and it's the same with guitars it's not what you pay for something or what something's worth that makes it good it's what you it's a tool it's what 
you do with what you have um is which is important and i swear i can get my sound out of any guitar or any amp because it's nothing to do with with the actual tool it's um it, it's spiritual you know it's it's how you play not what you play yeah my god that's just fantastic to see the thing that was all recorded there in 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 the desert just behind you it's, it brings a smile yeah, to my yeah. face that is so beautiful yeah, yeah so that's so that came out on vinyl as well so that's that must be a real delight yeah. to have a label behind you and then so what are you going to be fantastic pretty, yeah. i was going to say what are you working on next because it sounds like you've always got a project or two ticking away well like i was saying um it's very difficult even for me to connect all my dots, you know, like, okay, there's Generation X, three albums, then there's Empire, two albums, then there's uh, Westworld, three albums, then there's, and it's all kind of, it's all different uh, eras and different music, but I hope there's the thread that goes through it is, it all came out of my head. Um, it's, it's, um, Guitar, hopefully that's the thread that goes through everything. Because um, I've always wanted to be known as a, a decent guitar player. That's the main thing. Um, but the what's next is I discovered Bandcamp about last April. Um, and the way it works is fantastic for someone like me. Because everything is up on uh, all the streaming platforms and all that. But, of course, no one's searching for it. No one can find it if they are searching for it. So it kind of it's in a vacuum. It's, and it's Moondog. There's no mention that, oh, that's me. That's my songs, my recordings. Westworld, there's no mention it's me. It's my songs. My, you know what I mean? Yes. There's no space for you to put that information in there and to have the whole collection in one bloody place. Uh, so what I'm doing now is I'm putting up every album that had a release um, on my Bandcamp page, which is derwoodandrews1.bandcamp.com. And it's all going on that page. So if anyone is like, what the hell is this guy on about? I've never heard of him. Well, then you just go there and you don't have to accept cookies. You don't have to give your email so you get on a list. You don't You don't have to do anything except press play and it's free and you just listen. That's it. And to me, that's all I can do without having a team of people behind me, you know, working eight hours in an office promoting my music which i'm never going to have thank god this is all i can do so I, that's what i'm concentrating on so i'm i'm uh, ripping all my albums and putting them up there for the pure enjoyment of anyone who wants to find it that's it yes i can see so you've done some work with andy blade haven't you oh what a lovely guy i met him back in in the day and just a strange Instagram communication led to um, 
us writing some songs together and I hate collaborating. He hates collaborating, but somehow we don't mind collaborating together. And what comes out of it is something that I could never do um, because his lyrics and his, his metering and his tunes are not within me. Um, and I th I'd like to think that the music and the arrangements and the recording is not something that he can do, maybe. And so the both of us have different things we bring to making a record that is really special. And uh, we, I got involved a little bit with his album that's coming out next year and did a couple of tracks. And I played guitar on a few songs that he sent that needed a solo or something. And it's a beautiful thing, you know. It's um, it's a real working relationship, but uh, um, virtual. Yes, absolutely. No, he's. Uh, I think he's got a new band, hasn't he? I think he's um, sort of got quite a young a young lineup for his yeah his energetic live shows. Yeah, I've done a few interviews with him over the years, so it's been a very very amusing and engaging young chap. He is. He's. He's a real. Um, he well. Uh, he said. I said it. But I think another journalist said that he's a bedroom uh, Phil Spector, and he is. He's a. He's a genius. Um, and he. I love his lyrics. I. Lo I love how they. Kind of like. He'll probably hate me saying this, but um, Jarvis Cocker, his lyrics and his delivery, kind of remind me of. Um, Andy a bit I, I hope he doesn't mind me saying that <laughs> no I'm sure he doesn't oh no it's good I love your band game page actually so it's it's good to sort of have it all in one place and your your sort of little nod to Jimi Hendrix with smash hits it's nice yeah 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 <laughs> yeah. yes yes bit cheeky good. bit cheeky but you know there you go um yeah. i'm sure not many people are going to go hmm, jimmy hendrix but anyway <laughs> <laughs> i just remember i was very excited when i bought that album as a young 16 18 year old and thought blimey he's written some good songs but yes yeah, so, oh. so yeah so you, you you've got your band page, but musically have you got any other things that you're creating at the moment that's um about to be launched or not thinking of being launched next year not right now well there's the Andy Blade album coming out. Um, I'm also putting out an album uh, called, well, it's, it, the band is called Dead Horse. And it's uh, Glenn Matlock on bass, Rat on drums, me on guitar, and Gary Twin singing. And we did this when I was in London, just before I left. Um, Mid-90s. Oh, low battery. Yes. Um, and uh, I'm finally putting it out, so that'll come out early next year as well on a in on vinyl from a wonderful company called Monster Records from Spain. My God, you do have to do lots of admin, don't you, around the world? Even though you're you're stuck in the desert in Arizona, or... it's all possible now. Yeah, it's all possible. no. I'm in I'm in California now. In... I moved. Ah move states yes there you go well look mm. this is brilliant i mean if you could have whispered 
something to your 16 year old self starting out is there anything in particular that you would have gone oh that would have been a good idea or I would have focused a bit more on something else I would whisper don't listen to people whose it's not their business to say anything I would I would be more bullheaded and uh, sure of myself but at that age you're just not you know, you have to go through the knocks to understand. Yes, and this is true. This is good. I have to say, though, when you were sort of looking at the narrative of your work and thinking, how do you put it all together? Slowly, it does sort of make sense, though, doesn't it? These different decades and different chapters, you think, oh, actually, there is a sort of strange narrative that happens, you know, you know, alongside I, what, what was happening in the music world at that point as well, you know, responding. bloody... I bloody hope so, because it, it, I'd hate to spend my ta- time on this planet and have made no sense at all to anyone. But I think <laughs> I think most people regret having a break for about 10 years, where at least you haven't had that break and thought, shit, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I'd still kept making something. So you yeah, No, I can't, I can't stop, because, like I say, things are floating around. Yes. And they get they get in my head. And if I don't get them out, I would probably uh, go a bit loopy. So uh, it's a, it's self-therapy, you know? Yes, absolutely. And when, because when I've, you know, just briefly, when I've driven around some of those desert places and I see, you know, houses, shacks at the end of, end of kind of lanes and stuff and think, oh, hmm. what's it like to live there? What, what, what is it like to sort of live in that that play you know in one of those environments where you do have miles between each other or you know and just that level of isolation at times well it's it's i hope my battery doesn't run out i think it might do so if i just go i i I gotta thank you so much for this conversation it's been brilliant and your research is impeccable but being brought up in fulham and Fulham was a shithole at the time that I lived there. It's all swanky now. Yeah. But you had to be careful walking around the streets as a young kid, you know, because someone wants to pick a fight or, you know, it, it wasn't dangerous, but it wasn't uh, particularly safe. Now, out here, it, it it's dangerous in a different way because, unfortunately, everyone has... Uh, guns so you can't just pop around a neighbor's house without the possibility of surprising them and getting your head blown off um so there's danger and of course the plants and the animals i mean we have mountain lions cougars you know you could be walking down the lane and out pops a cougar that doesn't happen in fulham but it's um it's dangerous in a different way because you, you could actually, well, a lot of people come here and they, every summer, they forget to take water out into the national park and they never come home. They never, they just it's, dry it. Yes. Freedom it's, for- uh, yeah, it's, yes. it's a different kind of, uh, you've got to be respectful and, and careful. But it, like I said, it's, it's one where I feel I belong much more than I would if I was living in, london again yes 
Freedom for tooting, hey. Um, so, so, <laughs> so did yeah. you? So, so Wolfie. Wolfie, I know we loved him, didn't we? That was oh, uh, yeah. yes, dear old. But did you? When you? When you? How do you get food? And you know, is it very? Oh God, I'm getting very practical here. Aren't I? You know, so, sort of provisions. Do you ever think, shit, we nearly run out of food? We better go. No, with no it's not as not as uh, uh, isolated as as I'm saying. I, I guess I'm romanticising it. I've got a market a mile down the road oh okay and the the big town uh is 10 miles down the road i mean you know yes you have to make sure you don't run out of milk but if you do then it's just down the road but yes. um like i say i don't think you've heard any cars go by because it no. it's uh <laughs> it's my land is, is the size of a new york city block you know it's five acres and uh, that keeps people away because it's all fenced and locked up and, you know. Yes. God, it sounds fantastic. I just, it's slightly envious, actually. <laughs> well, yeah. good. Good. I am very, yeah, no, it's just kind of, you know, those landscapes that you look at when you drive and you stop and you wonder, mm. you know, like around, I don't know, Death Valley. And you think, oh, this is extraordinary. You know, there's this kind of the opera house at Death Valley, which is just a, a spooky but interesting place. Oh, yeah. And well, I'll tell you what, if you've been here before and you come back, then look me up because come around for a cup of tea, you know? Tea, yes, tea and scones. Oh, that would be yeah. amazing, Bob. <laughs> yeah. I'd be very, I'd be very, yes, that would be very tempting. But yes, look, well, thank you for your time. And I, and if you want, I can always send you the link for this and then you can put it on your social media platform site. Yes, and, please. And that will be good. But look, thank you again for your time. And and again, I've just really loved listening to all your music. It's been brilliant. So um, I hope more people get more curious and um, yeah, check it out. Well, like I said in the beginning, this is my special day and you've definitely made it special. And I don't mean to be corny, but that's really great great to hear, man. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Look, well take care. And um, You too. Keep enjoying those those big skies. Okay. Yes. Take care. Okay, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that was me in conversation with Bob Andrews talking about his life in music. And um, like I said, I'll give you the website or at least his Bandcamp page below. Um, this has been the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Have a great week. Stay safe.